Welcome back to our Comparative Legal Traditions book for today's class and for Monday's class. Monday I'll be talking about the European Union and the uh, European Human Rights System, which are supranational courts. Uh, today we're finishing up procedure and rules, and that dovetails very nicely with the reading uh, from uh, the binder on criminal procedure, but we'll also be talking about civil procedure, and I want to finish up with the reading from last time before we get to the Comparative Legal Traditions book, because we didn't have enough time last class to get to all these points. Uh, first point is that um, in dealing with criminal rules and procedure, both civil law and common law systems have a presumption of innocence. Uh, civil lawyers in particular get very angry when st statements are made that, oh, uh, there's a presumption of innocence in common law systems, but there's a presumption of guilt in civil law systems. And that's just factually incorrect. One can argue, uh, and fa indeed scholars do argue, that it's better to be a defendant in the common law systems, and it's better to be, uh, if you're really guilty, it's better to be a defendant in common law system because you're more likely to get off. And it's better to be a prosecutor in the civil law systems because the defendant has especially if the civil law, if the defendant is innocent, uh, because the balance is, uh, in the pretrial proceedings is, is done in secret. There's very long procedure of where the juge d'instruction, or the ma magistrate judge is called in other civil law countries, uh, ask questions of the defendant. In some countries like France, the lawyer is present. In other countries, a lawyer is not present. It's a long, drawn-out procedure in secret. The secrecy is designed to protect the defendant's reputation from adverse publicity about being charged with a crime, but it also means that you can have a defendant spending years in detention. In fact, the, the reading pointed out that in France, 51.6%, I think the number was, uh, of detainees in France are pre-trial detainees. And there are examples in the reading that we went over, like the case in Germany of someone who spent four years in detention before the actual trial took place, and he was found not guilty and served all that time for nothing. So obviously, there are a number of key differences between civil and common law systems. But the, the two that come to mind, first of all, uh, is the right to remain silent and the extensive use of bail. The right to remain silent, uh, of course, has been developed in, in the United States in the Fifth Amendment, but dates back to the Magna Carta of 1215 with King John. And the idea here is to uh, basically prevent the abuses of interrogation and torture that afflicted uh, the accused in English history as well, although it was something that was de facto, not de jure. We know from our reading on the torture book that torture confessions was a formal part of the Inquisition, 1492 in Spain. Uh, part of French law th up through the 19th century, early 19th century, uh, up to the period after the French Revolution. Uh, but it happened, you, obviously, there were kings that tortured people in the dungeons, but it wasn't supposed to be in order to get a confession. Um, there had always been at least a nominal presumption that you could not be forced to uh, interrogate, to, to be interrogated uh, and answer questions against your will, and that's because usually those situations lead to the lawyer asking the same question over and over again. Uh, lack of accountability so the lawyer could ask the question 15 different ways over 16 different days. 
until you get the answer that you want, and finally they get, you get it from you by using physical violence. The, the reason, uh, and the other distinguishing feature of common law systems compared to civil law systems is the right to bail. And that's something that has also emerged out of the doctrine uh, that began to protect the defendant in 1215. It's not that this was in the Magna Carta, but uh, it became very clear that by uh, the end of the Glorious Revolution, I think it's 1679, but I'm not positive, after the Bloodless Revolution, as it's sometimes called in England, where uh, King Charles I and then um, King James were uh, overthrown by Oliver Cromwell, and Oliver Cromwell was a puritanical leader with great excesses, so they got rid of him. And then they invited William and Mary of Orange. I think William and Mary, the, the university where Thomas Jefferson went, it's in the Colonial Athletic Association, uh, uh, is named after the two of them. And they were from the Netherlands. And the English Bill of Rights were, were the, was the Bill of Rights that uh, we named our first 10 amendments after, coming almost a century later. And in that Bill of Rights, these were protections of Parliament, but also of the general population. So in return this, for becoming king and queen of England, uh, the prince and princesses from somewhere in the Netherlands, William and, or William and Mary of Orange, uh, were uh, required to promise such things as freedom of expression, uh, and elect direct elections to Parliament, you know, sharing power with the parliament to some extent, although the, the king had more power in those days certainly than the parliament, but it was an experiment. Um, and also the right to have bail, in particular the right to bail was guaranteed, so it was formulated as the right not to have excessive bail. Uh, and the purpose, so, so it's clear that the right to, to, to not be imprisoned during your, the pretrial phrase of an adversarial criminal process was established by the 17th century in England. And uh, excessive bail was de you know, designed to keep you know, the bail being posted so high that no one could afford, a particular defendant couldn't afford it. Now the critics say that the bail system in, in England and the United States has always favored the rich. And that you know, quite frequently uh, poor people are kept behind bars because they can't afford to can't afford the bail or they can't afford the bond, which is an insurance scheme that bonding agencies use to uh, give the defendant a fraction of the cost of the bail. They put up the full amount of the bail uh, and then you know, the, they have a contract with you as the defendant. They assume that you're not going to run off of town and, and it would be a crime as well as a breach of contract if you don't show up for your trial date when the time is due for the trial to begin. Um, now, you're not guaranteed bail. If the risk of you uh, not returning is regarded by the judge as being too high, and whether that's over 50% or not, I'm not sure. Uh, in other words, there's no right to bail. And one reason they have more uh, serious crimes have higher bail payments is that the risk of flight is greater because the punishment would be greater. Right? If, you're in, if, you're in the, if you're charged with murder, you're facing 25 to life or execution or whatever the case may be, you, know, you, might, you might decide, well, I might as well make a run for it, got nothing to lose. And so for the most serious violent crimes, it's quite frequent that bail is denied. 
but you know, quite often, you know, the criminals that are charged with these crimes are the ones that can't afford the bail to begin with. So it's not clear whether it's the seriousness of the crime or the, ch the price, the much higher price for violent crimes that is the reason why so many poor people uh, end up out bail. In other words, the question is, uh, is the price of bail a spurious correlation? That the real reason is what the law says, which is the risk of flight rather than the high price. Uh, in civil law countries, uh, there have now been, because there's so much convergence between the two s systems, uh, some countries introducing a right to remain silent, uh, particularly in the last 20 years, very recent development, and also modified forms of bail, but that's less common. And the reason it's less common in civil law countries uh, is that the whole nature of the process is different. So let's review the civil law process one more time in criminal trials. And they have different names because in Germany they have a prosecutor, which sometimes translated as a procurator, um, which is really the same thing. Uh, but anyway, the, in France it's called the juge, which is judge, d'instruction. Judge, instruction judge, which sounds weird, so it's often translated as the magistrate judge. And of course, we're distinguishing misdemeanors from felonies and, and, and then distinguishing, again, the most serious felonies. So the, the processes are, are, are different depending on how serious the crime is. But let's just take the model case, which is in French. Um, the magistrate judge. Uh, works with the defendant as an inquiry. So the criminal process in a civil law system is called inquisitorial as opposed to adversarial, but it's not inquisitorial in the sense of the inquisition. Okay, I mean that's people who don't like civil law systems with uh, this inquiry process it's a much more neutral sounding word, word inquiry than inquisitorial or inquisition. But you can, it, it is true that the defendant feels like it's an inquisition during this process because until 100 years ago in France, you weren't even entitled to a lawyer. And now you're entitled to a lawyer through this entire process. And the, the criticism is made that actually the defendant is worse off with the lawyer than without the lawyer. Anyone know from the reading what, why that argument is made? The, the idea here, of course, is you have a lawyer with the defendant during this long period of inquiry, uh, which is done in secret, and therefore there's no accountability, and therefore it's meant to protect the defendant. But in, before they had this reform in France in the late 19th century, uh, there was no presumption you know, that you're on trial. It was very low key. It was uh, supposed to be kind of a joint investigation. Uh, the police could be present. The ju judge would be present. Uh, you would be there, but you'd just be answering questions. None of this evidence would be available in court. It was like analogous to a grand jury, which is also secret uh, and used in most states in the United States, not every state. I think California does not have that system. but. Most states have a grand jury, which is a secret. Uh, and you know, people say that's unaccountable. 
Uh, to use the famous expression about common law systems, uh, you can get an indictment. You can indict a ham sandwich if you want to, because you know you're, you're dealing with long lists of cases. It's all done in secret. In most states, the defendant doesn't isn't even not even present in our grand jury system. This is different in France. In this sort of model system, the defendant is present. And before they had the lawyer present, 110 years ago, it was a fairly low key and not such a long process. Now with the lawyer present. You don't get the abuses, but the whole process gets lengthened. So one abuse is that now pretrial detention has been doubled or tripled in length. And in France and the civil law systems, there's no discretion, as you'll recall from our dis uh, discussion in the first half of the class. So as long as the magistrate judge thinks the defendant is probably guilty, they keep going forward. Um, the defendant is not allowed to confess. So that's analogous or similar to not testifying against yourself. Um, or, and if the defendant makes a statement before the magistrate just, just or in court itself, uh, that is not uh, taken under oath. So even though there's no right, right to, to remain silent, there's no automatic acceptance of a confession as evidence of guilt uh, in a civil law system, at least under the French model. So in the United States, you know, if someone confesses freely, it's under oath, it's evidence, they've been given their Miranda rights, they have a lawyer present, they have, they've been told they can remain silent. But if they choose to confess, they do so willingly, and that's usually a slam dunk, right? Unless there's some evidence of intimidation, distortion, uh, or whatever. Now, that does raise the question, taking a step back, in the common law system, why would anyone confess? Well, in effect, a plea bargain is a confession. And plea bargains represent 90 to 95% of all criminal trials in the United States. So the number re one reason for confession is that while we have a pretrial process in the United States and Britain, it's a very short process. It's not months and weeks. Uh, it often, for many defendants, occurs moments before the first time you meet with the judge, because public defenders have a caseload of 50. One or two of these cases are in trial, which means there's all that almost no time left for everybody else. And he says to the defendant, you know, I think you ought to plead guilty or you know, plead for a, a shorter punishment. Uh, you're no, you have no right to that. But there's a general understanding, particularly at the bar, between the judges and the lawyers that they work with all the time. Uh, that they trust each other. A lawyer who's got some experience, particularly with particular judges, knows what kind of pleas will be accepted and what kind of pleas will not. Generally, the judges like to have a nice relationship with the, the lawyers and the district attorneys with whom they work all the time. Uh, and if they ask for a plea, the judge is more often not ready to grant it. And because of prison overcrowding, there's no point in filling up the prison with so many more detainees, now convicts, uh, going to prison because there's no place for them. Um, so anyway, this now in the last hundred years, defendant's situation, it's much more formal and then it's, for, it's much more confrontational. So in some sense, you almost get tried twice. If they do go to trial, and the trial is a much shorter process in the civil <coughs> law systems, there are no surprises at all because everyone's discussed all of the issues in depth. The magistrate judge you know, asks questions in both phases 
of the trial. Uh, the presiding judge will be a different judge in the actual trial. Uh, magistrate judge will decide how many more defendant, uh, sorry, how many more witnesses to call to get more information, to have follow-up questions, to return to points. It's much more of an ongoing inquiry. And once they decide, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed the crime in this phase, then they have the actual trial. And it's basically you know, a, a quick summary of everything they've already discovered through this whole secret process. And there's a dossier. And the dossier is a matter of record. I don't know if it's public or not, but it's available to both sides in a criminal trial, which sums up everything that was learned by the magistrate judge in the investigation during the inquiry phase. And so essentially, the trial is designed to go over the dossier to review all the points that were raised and elements of, of fact and law, if there are any doubts about the law, in taking on the particular uh, defendant for the charges that are made. Now, with convergence, of course, there are many other uh, differences between the two systems that are no longer as starkly different. One of these is the fact that uh, there is trial by jury uh, in some common law systems, but not others. England has it, although it's much more in the order of uh, lay judges. And the, this is similar in France now. Technically, France has always had trial by jury, but in France, it's always laid as lay judges. And in theory, the lay judges have an equal number of votes, but generally the balance always goes in the permanent judge's favor. And the real role of the jury in France and in many other common law countries is just to be there so they know that the judge hasn't gone hard wild or excessive in abusing the discretion and authority uh, that that judge has. Uh, it's also true that with the introduction of much more protections of defendants in the trial phase, such as the right to remain silent, the right to a lawyer, etc., that the civil law criminal trials are much more like uh, the adversarial trials and, and, and seem to be much more like an adversarial proceeding. It's true that the judge is, not, uh, is still neutral in the common law system and uh, only neutral towards the truth, but active and proactive asking questions in the civil law system. But now the judge knows that uh, the defendant has a lot more rights uh, that, and civil liberties considerations that could be put forward in a particular trial. The one major civil liberty in a trial in common law systems that does not seem to exist, not only in civil law systems, but also in England itself, is the exclusionary rule. Uh, in the United States, in our Constitution, uh, we can exclude, in fact, you must exclude any evidence that's obtained illegally or unconstitutionally. So for example, a policeman stops you for speeding. Um, you got a ton of cocaine in the back trunk. In many states, it's been held that uh, you cannot prosecute that person for the illegal drugs because you were stopped for speeding. And you, got, you came across the evidence um, without a search warrant. Now, not every state follows that case logic because they say the, you know, if, if you come across the evidence without, as, uh, routinely, 
uh, there's no problem. But the question of fact would be, is op telling the, the driver to open the trunk an unreasonable search and seizure? And some state judges, since most criminal law is a state law, will say that's an unreasonable search and seizure. You can't look in somebody's car trunk without a warrant. And other states have a much more aggressive posture towards coming up with the evidence. Now, one question, of course, is do the two systems have the same standard, um, you know, presumption of innocence unless proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? They all have the same language, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They all, uh, almost every country has ratified the International Human Rights Treaties, which also protect the defendant uh, to have uh, presumption of innocence until proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So the first question is, is the expression reasonable doubt have the same meaning between the two types of criminal justice systems and, for that matter, within the United States from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Historically, reasonable doubt meant not having a reason, but it meant what the reasonable man, which was what the expression they used until political correctness set in and we say person, but. Anyway, it's what the reasonable person would think is reasonable. But that's a tautology, right? What a reasonable person thinks is reasonable, we can in intuit what that means, or we can infer what that means, but essentially you're using the same word twice in the same sentence. Um, so a reasonable person is whatever the jury says is reasonable. But that also implies that one jury can have a different standard or criteria of reasonableness from the next jury. So in the United States, where trial by jury is exceptional in the sense that uh, the, the right to a trial by jury, which exi existed on paper since 1215 in the Magna Carta, which has been used much more extensively in the United States, uh, means that a reasonable uh, reasonableness standard varies from jury to jury. Now, some judges will instruct the jury at the end of the trial, if not at the beginning of the trial, that reasonable doubt means having a reason, which implicitly means having a good reason, or at least a plausible reason, not just any arbitrary reason. And that doesn't have, that's not a tautology, even though reason is in the root of the word reasonable. But reasonable obviously just connotes you know, a sense of, of, of common sense and proportion. It's not no doubt, um, et cetera. Other people say you should say 1% doubt, 1% or less. Uh, that's a reasonable doubt, more than 1%. But, you know, the problem with that is you're still subject to perceptions of what is 1%, what does that mean, et cetera. So, uh, we have this problem of varying standards, particularly in jury trials, which most defendants, if it goes to trial, will opt for because it's in the United States, unlike England, the verdict has to be unanimous. In England, even when they have juries, and, and you can get a jury trial if you really want one, it's not as much an advantage because I don't think it's a simple majority vote, but it's not a unanimous verdict. So you can obviously understand how uh, even if it were 11 to 1 or 10 to 2 or whatever the number of jurors are in Britain, you know, it's much easier to be convicted if you go to a jury trial if uh, you can have two votes in your favor and that's not enough as opposed to the United States where they got to get all 12 
against you, at least at one moment in time, while they're deliberating to put you away. Another problem is that initially, a jury trial in England, when the term was developed, was a jury of your peers. And that meant uh, they would be able to assess your veracity uh, by listening to you because they knew who you were, because you were literally your peer, not your peer group in some kind of vague way, like they also go to Georgia State, um, but that someone who you knew in your little village and they knew whether you were a liar or not or whether to trust you. Now that would be grounds for recusal, just as a judge must recuse Unless you're on the Supreme Court, for some reason in the US Supreme Court, the judges have decided they don't have to recuse themselves, although some judges often do. But Judge uh, Scalia did not recuse himself from cases where the Federalist Society is appearing as a, a, an attorney, and may, usually as a plaintiff or an appellant in the Supreme Court, even though he goes there and gives speeches and gives, gets paid big amounts of money. Or when Dick Cheney was uh, indirectly in a Supreme Court case involving surveillance that he had authorized when Scalia goes hunting with Dick Cheney. He came out alive, uh, <laughs> unlike um, some other poor fellow who got shot in the face. Um, so recusal, or to recuse, is the idea that because you're biased, because you know the person, you don't participate. Now in the United States, a judge must recuse if you're lower court, and basically every judge except the nine Supreme Court judges, and most of them do have that practice to some extent. Um, and witnesses must be uh, recused. Now, the United States has a process that exists uh, not in any civil law countries and not in England, which is called voir dire, which I, we've talked about, which is to see, to say, which is basically a peremptory exclusion from the jury of someone on the grounds that you feel the person is biased or too smart. And you can also have no reason at all. You've got a certain number of those. At a certain point, you run out of your quota, and then you end up with a jury, which is why professors occasionally do get on juries, but usually do not, because they're worried about that one, particularly on the, on the side of the prosecution, that one independent thinker who will always say, no, 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 and you never get unanimous verdict, and then you get a mistrial, then the whole trial has got to start over from, from day one. You know, a mistrial implies something was wrong. Well, I guess something was wrong in the sense that the prosecution couldn't prove its case to these 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt. And therefore, the implication is they should never have had the trial. But what the remedy for a mistrial is another trial, which is a very big expense. But because we have the voir dire process, therefore, uh, you're more apt to get a jury of average people, whatever that means, or people who either want to get off work and love getting on trials, in other words, people that have boring jobs, or people who are retired, or people who have nothing to do. In other words, you very rarely have someone on the jury who's extremely busy and important, you know, who usually, at least in their own mind, can't afford to take off from work. And you don't usually get very poor working people either because obviously, in theory, you're supposed to be paid your wages when you're on jury. But there are employers who will penalize you if they're forced to pay your wages on top of the $6 a day or $12 a day, whatever you get paid for being on the jury. Um, they'll penalize you at work. So basically, you don't dare take it off because you can't afford to have the, the boss be mad at you. 
and and small businesses obviously with small numbers of employees have a harder time you know doing without an employee and if they find out that you know they find out that they can get on without you they decide may decide they don't need you in which case you're at risk of losing your job as well so you get a lot of you know government workers who have job protection who hate their jobs um, they're not going anywhere in the bureaucracy and they would just love to go serve now it used to be until about five or ten years ago that lawyers never had to serve judges never had to serve Doctors never had to serve, but in the interest of egalitarianism and representativeness, in most states in the United States, all those people have to at least be eligible for jury duty. It's still, you, if, you want, if you don't want to get on a trial, you, the first thing you say in most trials, since most trials that you get you know, are drug cases or something like this, get the odd interesting case like I had, which was a terrorism case in DeKalb County, which is a charge in, in Georgia for threatening to kill anybody. And so we had a, um, a father who's the principal sent, had the daughter arrested. And he said, I'm going to kill you. So she was, he was indicted of terrorism. And he argued pro se, which is without a lawyer. And they usually say, you know, you're a fool to argue a case pro se. But they had me on the jury. And I just said, this ain't terrorism. I'm sorry. Um, and in, in any event, you know, he didn't, he wasn't, we'd also decided that he wasn't serious. He was just, he was very frustrated that his daughter was being sent to, uh, to the police for just, you know, misbehavior. It was criminalizing deviant behavior in school. You know, it was, the, the daughter probably was mouthing off and disrespectful, but she, she didn't commit a crime. And it, probably we felt, I can't read everybody's mind, but, uh, we all felt that you know, shouldn't have been charged in the first place with any crime, let alone with terrorism. And it was kind of like literalism run amok. Are you guys, yeah? Uh, so did you get to like lobby in the jury room for that? I mean. Well, I mean, it wasn't a very long deliberation. We just kind of said, we just looked at each other and sort of like rolled our eyes. Terrorism? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like, I, I don't really understand why they had this charge, why they call it that in the Georgia statute, because in, in a sense, if they wanted to say, you know, threatening to kill someone, which is assault is actually the threat of battery. So when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat you up, and then I go beat you up. Battery is the beating you up. Assault, in most states, is the threat to beat you up. And I guess they don't have threatening to kill is, is one step up. So they wanted a category for killing or murdering. Uh, and they called that terrorism. And, you know, that's what social scientists would call concept stretching a little bit. I mean, they, they should, if there's, you know, they could call it assault or they could call it murderous assault. That would at least make it more plausible, I guess. Um, another point of convergence between these two systems is that Germany adopted the prosecutor. So in Germany's variant on the civil law system, uh, the prosecution is much closer to an adversarial process. And we know that Germany generally has case law, has a Supreme Court with binding case law, and six different divisions of its civil law, and then a, a constitutional court for appeals on its constitutional court. So unlike France, which has no, the Court of Cassation has no binding case law. The Council of State for Administrative Law has binding case law, as you will remember. 
uh, for issues of dealing with executive issues, and in both cases, only on the basis of pre-promulgation of the law, not like in the common law, which requires an active controversy, an active conflict for the case to even be admissible in court. So the use of a prosecutor in Germany, in particular regional prosecutors, and Germany really follows us in having most criminal law at the local law, uh, and these prosecutors are not elected like they are typically in the United States, but are uh, appointed, but these prosecutors then will take on the role of an adversarial proceeding. So Germany really is a kind of hybrid system. An even larger hybrid, that is a merger of the two types of systems, is Japan. Japan is a country that uh, had feudalism until the Meiji Restoration of approximately 1865. Anybody seen any of Kurosawa's films? Kira Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, and nobody? Yes, no? So a lot of those uh, historic epics that he's done are from the, the period of feudal law. You notice the samurai are feudal lordship above them. They're not the aristocrats, the landowning class, but they're an inherited right. They provide the soldiers of the feudal system. So a slight variation on the European model where the feudal lords are also, also landowning aristocrats. But the peasants have no rights whatsoever. So uh, prior to its emergence as an industrial power, when it rapidly industrialized after Admiral Perry's uh, naval uh, armada went into and shelled uh, Tokyo Harbor, I think it was. Um, and the, Japan said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So they industrialized. But up to that point in time, peasants had zero rights. So in many ways, the emergence of modern law in Japan, particularly in criminal law, is something that is a very recent phenomenon in world history. Uh, the Japanese constitution was it's always said, it's not literally true, but written by MacArthur during the occupation of about eight years by US and other allied troops. And needless to say, there were all kinds of rights and rules in the Japanese system uh, that were imported by MacArthur on top of the civil law tradition that was developed in the early 20th century based on the Belgian model of constitutional law and civil law. Uh, and so, for example, Article 37 of the Japanese Constitution reads, quote, in all criminal cases, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial tribunal. So speedy and public trial is found in the US Constitution. He shall be permitted full opportunity to examine all witnesses, so the right to cross-examination, which is part of US common law that we inherited from Britain. He has, shall have the right of compulsory process for obtaining witnesses on his behalf at public expense. So the witnesses are called by the defense and not by the examining magistrate, as in the French model of civil criminal law. At all times, EQ shall have the assistance of competent counsel. So uh, in interestingly enough, in Japan, like in France, the uh, right to have a lawyer uh, paid for by the state was provided decades before that right came in the 1950s uh, in the United States. And the counsel who shall be, if accused, is unable to secure the same by his own efforts be assigned to his use by the state. So 
Uh, not only do you have a right to counsel, you have to have counsel. That's so that you don't have uh, rantings and ravings like Slobodan Milosevic did in his criminal trial at the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, where he was a lawyer for himself. And where they're trying to do in the trial of Radovan Karadzic, who was arrested as a food, health food guru with long hair and a beard, the murderous president of the Bosnian Serb Republic. And he's on trial now as we speak. Uh, and he's not wanting to take counsel, but they're trying to impose counsel. And they're keeping a much stronger reign on him than they allowed Milosevic. Because Milosevic, first of all, didn't have the experience of, of what to do with a, a, a defendant that won't use a lawyer. And secondly, they didn't realize how long he would delay. The whole trial was supposed to take two years, which was considered far too long, not a speedy trial. And he used two and a half years, uh, Milosevic, uh, just you know, responding to the case against him. And when he died, and some people speculate, you know, he died from you know, secretly imported medicine, presumably from his lawyer, that was quite toxic. And so there's speculation that like both of his parents, he committed suicide rather than go on with the trial. Uh, but you know, God only knows how long he would have ranted and raved when he actually had the defense phase of the trial, which was just beginning when he died uh, trying to get do Russian doctors, because he didn't trust the doctors that the Yugoslav Tribunal provided. All right, Islamic criminal procedure. And the Islamic system varies a lot. There is Sharia law, and there's the Hudud punishments. We talked about the Hudud punishments on Monday, the swift and very painful whippings or lashings or floggings that had characterized violent practices in Europe. Uh, uh, and then in the age of the Enlightenment, which began in the late 17th century in Scotland and got to the continent of Europe in France in the late 18th century, and then Germany and so forth in the 19th century, these kinds of violent punishments were considered cruel and unusual. Indeed, the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, which is a different standard than used uh, in most uh, human rights treaties, the Convention Against Torture, which is cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment. But cruel and unusual punishment was one of those guarantees that William and Mary had to provide to the people of Britain and specifically to the parliament when they accepted the invitation uh, to become king and queen of England in the late 17th century. And that's why the US Constitution also uses that same phrase in our Bill of Rights, cruel and unusual punishment is banned. And it's a difficult phrase because as long as something is usual, technically speaking, if you literally uh, read it that way, then uh, it's a perfectly legitimate punishment. Um, OK, so in Islamic justice, the punishments we've already talked about, what about the trial procedure? Uh, first of all, it really, uh, we must say that there is the system of fatwas, which you've probably heard about in the press. Salman Rushdie, who's been a scholar at F-A-T-W-A-H, sometimes spelled. It's actually just a legal interpretation <coughs> given by a mullah or other cleric. But it's a legal interpretation that typically is used for getting resolutions of divorce or matrimonial disputes or inheritance laws. Uh, sometimes it's used to get exemptions on the ban in, in, in Muslim 
Sharia law, it not only is pork not allowed, alcohol not allowed, but charging interest is not allowed. Now you'd think that that would put banks out of business because what banks basically do is pay interest to uh, people who lend the bank money in savings accounts and other ways, certificates of deposit and so forth, and then the bank relends the money at a higher interest. And as long as the spread is a couple of points, it really doesn't matter about future inflation because the original cost of money was less than what you're getting back, assuming you're being repaid, which of course is no longer the case uh, with all of these collateralized debt obligations and swaps and God, I can't even understand what it is all the time. And I don't know how you have an insurance scheme by bundling securities and then let people gamble, why that's, uh, tax deductible expense. But anyway, that's another subject. Um, so the fatwas are a form of saying, OK, well, what you're doing uh, is as long as you keep a written account uh, uh, of the payments and the payments are done on a piece of paper, that's not interest. And you know that's just a concession to modernity. In, in the sixth century, seventh century, uh, when Muhammad, the prophet, peace be upon his name, uh, was uh, involved in the writing of the Quran, you know, there was no interest. This was not an industrialized society. And it was, it was thought to be, you know, an immoral, unethical gouging of somebody just for the, using money to make money, which was considered to be not real labor, not real work. And, you know, just as I think I mentioned earlier in the semester, Orthodox Jews find many ways not to follow as a result of the interpretation of the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, so too, you know, most fatwas make basically banks in Muslim countries that are under the jurisdiction of Muslim law able to make loans in exactly the same way that commercial banks do in the West. But similarly in Christendom, uh, Europe, Europe also banned interests as usury, and then usury became known as excessive interest which was meant to be price gouging as opposed to the use of interest itself. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini pronounced a fatwa on Salman Rushdie for the novel The Satanic Verses because it had a scene in there of him imagining what it was like to be uh, dealing with Satan and uh, Allah, the uh, God, uh, and he pronounced a death sentence on him. And everyone took it seriously because he the Iranian Revolutionary Government, under his tutelage, had executed 1,100 to 1,200 people by firing squad in public. And they figured that uh, Salman Rushdie would be in, in very bad shape. But it, it's just to summarize what little time we have left is that uh, in Muslim countries, Sharia-based courts in practice have not act, operated in the way that literally suggests that they do that there's lots of discretion built into the system. Uh, the problem is that every time something horrific happens, such as a woman is raped, uh, the rapist produced four male witnesses, a male's testimony amounts to four times a female's testimony. They lie and say that uh, she was committing uh, fornication outside the institution of marriage. She gets stoned to death or gets charged with uh, that kind of crime and, and with the threat of being stoned to death, that everyone thinks this is the way uh, Sharia, Sharia courts work in most of the world. The way Sharia courts work in most of the world is it's only in jurisdiction dealing with inheritance, occasionally with divorce settlements, 
Uh, it tends to be the more conservative interpretation of Sharia. Uh, and in some countries, you know, you can have find ways to get in civil courts rather than religious courts. In others, it's mandatory. Uh, but the courts do not operate in a literalist, textualist way with the worst case scenario operating each time. Okay, thank you, and we'll see you on Monday to deal with the European system.